Welcome to the Legal Academy, a podcast about law professors. I'm your host, Oren Kerr, a law professor at the University of California at Berkeley. This is an interview-based show in which I'll interview leading law professors about the Legal Academy. We'll cover topics like legal scholarship, teaching law, university service, and everything else that law professors think about. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to the Legal Academy, episode four. I'm your host, Oren Kerr. My guest this week is Danielle Citron of Boston University Law School. Uh, Danielle has been a professor uh, since I think about 2006 or 2004, it depends on when you count the VAP. Um, But she was a professor for 15 years at the University of Maryland uh, Law School before joining the faculty at Boston University in 2019. Uh, She writes widely and incredibly interestingly about uh, topics often relating to information privacy, uh, the effect of new technology, threats raised by new technology, new legal issues raised um, uh, in the internet world. Uh, and, and remarkably, uh, her, her, for law professors, unusually, her work has had real legislative and public impact. And in a way that we're going to talk about is really uh, in, important and interesting work that uh, has led to legislative reforms and has led to a lot of people paying attention to issues that they had not paid attention to before. Uh, uh, she's an author of a 2014 terrific book, uh, Hate Crimes in Cyberspace, which is also part of her important scholarship. Uh, and most notably, uh, in 2019, uh, Danielle was uh, awarded uh, a position as a MacArthur Fellow, the so-called Genius Grant, a very exciting uh, development, uh, which we will also talk about. Uh, and uh, finally, she has visits lined up in the next year or two at Harvard and Chicago. So she's seen a bunch of different schools and we'll see uh, others as well. So I'm really thrilled uh, to have Danielle on the show. Danielle, welcome. Oh, it's great to be here, especially because I feel like in some ways I grew up with you in the academy, uh, admiring you and your work and your enthusiasm and influence too. So, uh, and the way in which your your work is always cited by the courts. I feel like on our very first conference together, or and this was 2007, in that lawn and network world, was my very first time at a conference. And I remember having a conversation with Jonathan Detrain and and I was like, I really want to meet Oren Kerr. I know he's here. <laughs> and JC said, like, he is magnificent. His work is cited throughout, throughout the courts. It is so impressive. And you are so young, Oren. So uh, I, I have been appreciating that about you and the impact of your work as well. Thank you. Well, that's very, very sweet of you. So uh, let, let's jump in to... to um... yeah. Uh, to, to, to your work, because I get to interview you in this, in this one. So, um, you mean that didn't work, the whole turning the tables thing, it didn't happen? <laughs> so, so, okay. So you, your work is really unusual in the sense that it is having this broad impact. Uh, you, you have been writing on new technologies and the impact of new technologies uh, and proposing legislative reforms that have happened. Uh, and so a lot of law professors read a lot of law review articles say there should be a law and there is never a law that actually follows this. Whereas you know, you've been writing just to, to, to pick, I think, the obvious example and so-called revenge pornography laws or non-consensual uh, pornography laws. I, I, I checked last night. I think we're now up to 46 states plus the District of Columbia have enacted and laws in this area, really yeah. in response to yeah. your work and, and advocacy of, of others. Um, and you're advising companies that are having a huge impact in this space. So you, your work is really, it's not just the scholarship, it's the scholarship and the advocacy. And, and I'd love to know how, how did that 
come together? How, when you think of yeah. your scholarship, are you thinking it's going to have this public impact? Is it just sort of, it seemed like a coincidence that it had this impact? Sort of, if you could take us through kind of how this amazing dynamic came to be. Okay, so um, in, I'd say about 2011, you know, I had been writing in my work about stalking and cyber harassment, which I understood as a civil rights problem throughout like writing about it, victims would get in touch with me and tell me their stories and their struggles. And there was a moment, I think it's 2011 or 2012, where one of the victims I was writing about um, lives in Hawaii. And she said, "There's plaintiffs could not sue as Jane Doe's and John Doe's. Like there was a, the, the Hawaii courts would not permit privacy plaintiffs to sue pseudonymously. Um, even though, of course, the defendant would know precisely who's suing them, but she was a business owner and she was afraid that, you know, there was, she was a victim of revenge porn on a site that was little heard of. It was called Private Voyeur. There wasn't in a search of her name, but it was torments because she would go to the site. Her ex would send her to the site, say, see what I put up of you. It was, you know, racially demeaning, uh, nude photos of her. Um, and she wanted to be able to sue her ex, basically to get him to stop posting these new photos um, because he kept doing it. They would take it down, he put more up. And she said, listen, we gotta, I can't sue in my own name because people in my community will find out. It will, it, will, it will no doubt leak and be in a Google search of my name, what do I do? And so we talked about the possibility of changing the law uh, and, and talking to Hawaii legislatures. So because she was a person of prominence, she went to you know her, her, her uh, wherever she lives in Hawaii, like her lawmakers. And we got the law changed in Hawaii. So I testified um, on behalf of courts at least considering the possibility of pseudonymous litigation in cases involving privacy and other sensitive information that would deter people from bringing lawsuits. And I think it's that work. You know, you asked, like, how did this get started and why was it effective? So that same kind of dynamic also played out in the non-consensual pornography space, right? Writing about my book and various law review articles with Marianne Franks, writing about the experience of your nude photos being posted online without consent uh, and the burgeoning like marketplace that, have, you know, there were like 3,000 revenge porn sites making a big business of this. Um, and, and talking to victims, advising them, and then they would go to law enforcement and get rejected. You know, like there's nothing you can do, go buy a gun, too bad, so sad. And then they would go to their lawmakers and we would create, you know, there would be with communities of support. So the victims would go and say, got to talk to Danielle Citrin, got to talk to Marianne Franks. And at some point, you know, Marianne, and I wrote that article, criminalizing revenge porn. And so my, um, in Maryland, I was living in Baltimore, my um, state representative, John Cardin, got in touch with me and said, will you draft a bill for us to sign? And so the ACLU in Maryland and I sort of wrote it together because I've been so mindful growing up in our privacy law scholars community, mindful of the First Amendment concerns, right? Being really attentive to them. And so we drafted the bill together, the Maryland ACLU and myself. And the deal was, if it came out of committee the way it went in, I would testify in support and the ACLU would stand down. Well, sausage making, it comes out of committee fairly broken, right? It's like too narrow and too broad. And I'm like, I'm not going to testify in Annapolis. Y'all did not listen to me, and so my it passed because as things do. But I think I think it is that combination of of um, working with victims, writing about them, 
the dynamic of victims feeling so vulnerable and alone um, and going to lawmakers and then connecting advocates like myself and scholars with those lawmakers. And we started that we founded the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. Holly Jacobs, are someone who I had written about in my scholarship, um, she founded CCRI and called it a civil, you know, she sort of embraced my idea that here we have a cyber civil rights violation because it drove her offline. She has to change her name, you know, fundamentally upended her life. And I think that work with Holly through CCRI just enabled all of these different lawmakers from across the states and the federal level to reach out to us, to bring us in and at least try to help sort of craft laws that would withstand First Amendment challenge and that were gonna be effective. And it was it was a challenge, no doubt, right? Because they didn't all it, listen to us. <laughs> yeah, so I'm curious. And first, I, I, I should have uh, mentioned in the introduction how Marianne Franks and others yes, have, have been involved in this. I didn't want to suggest- Oh, no, no, you didn't. Sort of you but Marianne always, yeah, yeah. And Marianne knows, I will shout her to the stars. So um, yeah, Great. of course. Yeah, and and so and so there's a, a group, but a, a but a very small group of people yeah, that are having this enormous impact, and and you're you're describing sort of legislators working with you and sort of being interested in in your work. Was it originally part of your idea to work with legislators? Did that just sort of happen? I mean, I guess, happened. and part of what you're describing in the Hawaii case, it just sort of happened. And I I like the way you sort of described. And then a law was passed. Like, well, like, no, I mean, normally we don't think really that is easy, and, part, right? Right. No, it wasn't. Hard but 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 yeah, you know, sort of working on the testimony and encouraging her and being in constant contact with her, I think provide and and then the lawmakers who were writing the bill was was incredibly important, right? It's it's work you have to do to get a good bill passed. And one thing I think is worth noting is it's not just lawmakers. So I worked for the um, then AG of California, Kamala Harris, for two years. So when my book came out, Hate Crimes in Cyberspace, um, she called me. She had a very small executive team. There were about six people. And her privacy and tech person, Jeff Rabkin, called me and said, we love your book. We want you to fly to California. We want you to share the book with us. Do you have any trips planned? You know, because I frequently go to California for work. Uh, I said, you know, it turns out I'm going to be there. And then, you know, part of that work with A.G. Harris not only was to sort of educate law enforcement, because that's part of what our mission was, but also working with California lawmakers on their jurisdictional statutes. Like, so through, you know, A.G.s can play this really robust role in legislation. Um, some A.G.s can offer legislation A.G. Harris. She didn't. She advised lawmakers. Um, but that is another a dynamic that I think people, maybe academics underestimate, is the role of the state attorney general in moving the law, changing policy, setting norms that I found incredibly gratifying and really went a long way vis-a-vis -vis companies as well. You know, working with Facebook and Twitter as I have for about 10 years, you know, when she brought, we called it the Cyber Exploitation Task Force, when she brought 50 people in a room. It was, you know, every company you can imagine in Silicon Valley, myself, folks at Microsoft, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Marianne Franks was there. Um, Erica Johnstone, who's one of our merry band of warriors <laughs> in this fight. Um, that was incredibly important. She, she used her power to convene to get everybody in the room, say these are the harms. So I spoke about the harms of non-consensual pornography and what we could do about it. And basically after that meeting, we had set up this task force a couple of weeks later, Google announced it was going to de-index non-consensual pornography in people's names. 
Twitter banned it, Reddit was first, believe it or not. Um, YouTube, so we had, there was a consensus that she helped form, right? She didn't, if she wasn't coercive, she said, look, I'm bringing you people together. If you want to work on it, great. And there was education around it and companies. So does that make sense? There is this dynamism between the relationship between lawmakers and companies in their jurisdiction and state AGs and lawmakers that you can make a real impact, especially a state like California where you are, where you've got, you know, the what did they say? It's the, could be a country in <laughs> your GDP. You have thousands and thousands of what you call peace officers, right? That needed training um, and made a big impact. So, so it's not just lawmakers that I think we've made some serious inroads on for privacy protections and what I would call sexual privacy uh, violations. And and I, uh, I'm interested to know how the experience that you've had, sort of seeing your academic ideas turn into actual practices, actual legislation, changing policy at companies. How has that changed your approach to your scholarship? Well, it definitely, you know, absolutely informs the, I feel like it just makes it richer, right? Like to consider market solutions and possibilities, you also recognize, A, what they're not doing, <laughs> what they should be doing. What's nice is I don't get paid for any of my work because then I could be a pain in the ass from the outside, right? I sort of view myself as the ultimate nudge <laughs> because, you know, they bring you in and they advise you and they take your advice or they don't. And I, I kind of have a big mouth. So, you know, talk to a very senior person and say, look, I think what you're doing is ruining democracy <laughs> and they could take it or leave it. Right? No one's paying me for my ideas. And so what I think is, is really valuable is it definitely informs my scholarship because it teaches me what they're doing, what they're not doing and the, the lengths that we should go. It allows me to think about how they might imagine their roles, right? Um, because we so often, at least in our space, privacy, it's self-regulation, notice and choice. We don't police a whole lot. So, you know, that too was a lucky confluence of my work, right? Lucky in the sense of working on speech and content moderation. You know, 10 years ago, I remember when Twitter asked me to write a memo of what is harassment? What are threats? This is 2009, right? And they didn't move on that for a good six years. <laughs> but I got to define the way they thought about it, right? And um, help them shape that when they were ready, when it became a bad PR problem with Gamergate. Does that make sense? Like that you're at the ready with your advice. And so it has absolutely informed my scholarship and allow, you know, the independence has allowed me to be creative, not feel hamstrung. I owe nobody anything. Um, and that also has been really freeing in that sense um, to be your, uh, that's the beauty of academia, golly. Yeah, and, and do you have a sense when you think through the kind of different ways that academics can speak? You, you mentioned your book that uh, now Senator Harris had, had sort of, or her staff had really grabbed onto. Yeah. It was, it was helpful. Um, there are articles, there are, uh, are books, you've done a TED Talk, you've, sort of, you've, you've covered lots of different formats and I'm interested to know when you sit down and think, okay, what am I going to do next? Do you have a sense of yeah. which ideas should sort of fit which which formats? Oh, that's interesting uh, to think about. Um, I sort of feel like writing is my favorite thing to do. And I know I give tons of talks and do lots of advising, but like I'm in my happy place, you know, when I'm writing. And so definitely scholarship is, I do a lot of op-ed, right? Like we both do write op-eds and blog posts and, um, 
you know, giving talks and sort of, you know, um, different audiences, right? Because you want your ideas out there and, you know, it's different ways to reach different people, right? Um, and so I try to do it all, right? Like create the base of scholarship to concept, that's the hard work of, you know, conceptualizing the project, right? The descriptive problem, the, you know, the, the, the normative challenges, the values at stake, what are we going to do, <laughs> right? And for me, I have to lay it out in my scholarship, at least in my own head. And sometimes, I don't know if you found this, but, but blogging back in the old days would help me, I would work out ideas in a post and then it became scholarship. So I do think there is this dynamic relationship between the op-eds, the pieces you're writing, and I often let them feed each other. Does that make sense? Like um, it, it, it makes it more fun too because the op-ed lets you get a bite-sized idea out there. You can respond to events, but you draw on your work, right? And your ideas. I feel like nothing is shocking, I'm gonna say, right? Like we're building on what our set of ideas and then kind of getting more engagement with these different fora. So, so one way in which you've had a remarkable profile uh, in, in terms of your engagement is winning the MacArthur Fellow position uh, last year. A remarkable uh, accomplishment, Shocking. a really cool kind of public uh, recognition of your work for which, you know, congr congratulations again. Uh, but how has that changed your work or how has that changed your perspective winning that award? What's interesting is that I, I always feel like in such a rush because I feel like these issues, they really drive me. And I'm like, I've got to get that out there. I've got to write. And what's interesting, so this is something Martha Minow, who's on the board of the Mark Arthur Foundation. I, I didn't, hadn't met her before I won. Um, and, and she and I have now become friends. And, and she said, listen, this whole award is about, you do anything with this money. <laughs> you know, go buy a house, like do whatever you want. You know, she said, it's there to make sure you can be your, but, you know, it's, for, it's a credit to your creativity. That's what the award's all about. And so feel that and don't feel like you're in a rush. Kind of enjoy and marinate. And that's like, I think the gift of perspective is sounds odd, but I'm, I'm now going to kind of, okay, I'm going to write my next book. I'm going to slow down a little and just enjoy that. Right. And I, it's, it sounds silly. I'm always in such a rush. I'm going to try to slow down, you know, and um, do a lot of reading and thinking and writing, you know, on the book. And that's what I'm going to take next year off. Um, and it's so funny. People ask me, are you busier now than you were before? And I got to say, I've always been busy. <laughs> I feel like I give a talk every week, no matter. I used to travel every week for the last 10 years, right? Like I'm a travel. I just always give talks. And it's true. It could it could like put more pressure on that. And, and a former um, a MacArthur fellow um, who I love and I um, got in touch with me to talk to me. And she said, don't do a million things. I spent my, you know, like you're going to get a lot of demands on your time. I spent the first year or two just doing interviews, being exhausted. Don't do it. And I was like, totally. <laughs> and that was fabulous advice. So, you know, I'm just going to do what turns me on. I'm going to try to slow down a little. Um, and, and, and of course, you know, what, what excites me and animates me is the work that I do with Marianne Franks on the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. So that is integral. It's even integral to my next book on sexual privacy. So it's, it's not just that, you know, you can't tear it apart from the work that I'm doing, 
but but it too will be as part of that creativity like we've gotten a lot of traction on the hill on a bunch of ideas that we have um section 230 uh, digital forgeries we call deep fakes um and so we're going to keep going uh, we have a federal bill um, that would ban non-consensual pornography on the on the on the hill, and I worked with Senator Harris's office. Marianne was working on the House side, <laughs> and we've come. They've come together. I mean, it's like we're working with each other on the same bill, and it's got bipartisan support. And it's you know it's exciting. Um, we just re-released the House bill. Amber Heard is now like one of our ambassadors, and she came and spoke. So. I know we can't expect Congress to do much. This is what a time to live. But, um, you know, we, we, we feel like we're moving on that one too. So that's how um, it's just like I was so shocked. I didn't even know what to say to John Palfrey when he called me because they yeah, tricked me. I was, trick I was curious about that question, actually. Yeah. How, how do you. Oh, or we'll, never, crazy we'll never have fans. to worry about this problem, but how do they, how do they tell you? You get an email, by the way. I did. I got an email. They don't tell you anything. They say, I'm calling because the email was, hi, this is so-and-so. Um, the president of the MacArthur Foundation would love to talk to you about a nominee. And um, we're really excited about this nomination, and we really need you on the phone. And so, of course, A, I don't even know. What, I barely know what the MacArthur. I mean, I know what it is. But, like, have you studied what it is? No. So you go. I went studying who the fellows were the th past five years. And I'm thinking to myself, See, Michelle Goodwin and Marianne Franks. I was ready. I told them both. I was like ready with my list of why they should be MacArthur Fellows. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, because you have to guess who they're calling about, right? right. So, and they're calling me. So I'm like, I'm ready, man. <laughs> so the time comes and they call and, and John Palfrey says, I'm actually calling. Oh, it wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be him. It was supposed to be someone else. And I was like, why is the president of the MacArthur Foundation calling me? And he's like, well, it's because you're a fellow. Like, he then, and I was like, I'm pretty sure I spent the entire time saying you're joking. Like, I was like, this is a deep fake. Like, who knows what I was saying? But I was like, I'm pretty sure I fell on the ground at some point and was like, no, I'm sure I was cursing. Like, shut the F up. You know, like, come on. And the thing is, you're on the phone, not only with John Palfrey, but the whole board. You're in the room with all the people who made the decision. The, the, there are people in the foundation who kind of part, they run this process, the fellows process. So I was in a room full of 15 people <laughs> and you hear them laughing and they like are enjoying it with you. So apparently I was the first call of the 26 that John Palfrey made. And so I just did a talk for the foundation about um, sexual privacy and the commercialization of intimate information. And he was saying like, I'm a special person to him because I was the first person who he called. So I was like, mm. um, so it's wacky, honestly. I still don't believe it. I'm like, really, you sure? Like, okay. That's very cool. So I, w I wanted to turn to um, more to the question of academic hiring yeah, uh, uh, and uh, the experiences of different professors. One um, aspect of the first few episodes I've had of the show is that um, of the three people I've interviewed, all three went to Yale for law school. Yeah. Um, uh, Akila Marr started at Yale as a professor at the age of 26, I think, and Jamal <laughs> Green um, yeah. worked for the Supreme Court and then went to Columbia. And it was just, you know, sort of in instant success, uh, effectively. Uh, and one one aspect of your uh, career that I really admire is that you you didn't have the elite credentials 
which law schools so often just grab onto um, in, 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 in your career. You went to Fordham for law school, uh, a fine law school, certainly, but not like a feeder no, school for academia. Uh, and then you were, uh, if I recall correctly, an associate for two years and then a law clerk on the Southern District of New York for two years. Um, and so I, 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 one thing I really want to know is how do you feel your background and in particular the absence of the shiny yeah. JD from Yale, Harvard, Stanford, Chicago, wherever, um, how do you feel that's changed your academic career? Like what challenges do you feel that has raised and how did you overcome them? Yeah, because it's true that the academy can be quite snobby. So that you do, it's interesting because I'm already feel about myself or that I'm a scrappy dog. <laughs> you know, I already, I just start there, you know, and, and all, I know so many people have this like imposter syndrome thing. So that when you join the academy or you, um, and I feel like I never planned this as the career, right? So I just, at every step, just jumped on it you know, like whatever the opportunity was. Um, to I, I met my dean at a women's law center thing in, in Maryland. Um, when we first moved there, we had really little kids. And she's like, you're amazing. We want to visit. Uh, we have this civil procedure opening. And I was like, oh, that sounds so exciting. And I was like teaching at Fordham in the legal writing program. I had really teeny kids. And I just, what do they say? If you do, I, I just enjoy the living daylights out of that experience. And the students were like, not only like, they're like, she has to stay. So they gave me a job for the second semester teaching civil procedure. I got a teaching award and my dean met with me and she's like, why don't you write? What are you interested in? So I told her what I was interested in, you know, technology, changing technologies and assumptions in the law and, you know, our legal commitments and values that are being upended. And, you know, I was like, I'm thinking about this VoIP and jurisdiction thing because I was, you know, teaching civil procedure. And she was like, why don't you write? So I wrote, wrote an article, got a place in UC Davis Law Review and basically just gave a job talk one. <laughs> University of Maryland. So it's true. It's like super unorthodox, right? And one thing that is, it is true as so, so folks who are listening, what is annoying and what I'm glad to bust open is the idea that um, to be a successful, thoughtful, rigorous academic, you need to come from these three schools, right? You, do, you don't have to. You do need a lot of grit, just generally. I know a lot of people with credentials who aren't writing anything interesting. Like, just be engaged, right? It, you know, whatever it is, do it with verb, you know? So you're right. I have come into... I have come into interaction, not with people in our age group, frankly, or younger, but with much older people who remind me, I'll give a talk, this was over the years, oh, Fordham Law School, like, why does that have to do with the tea and shine I've written 40 law review articles? Do you know what I'm saying? Or I'm like, honestly, like, what does that have to do with anything? And, and really, truly, like, even two years ago, some, oh, like, what does that have to do with anything? Like, I, I, it's just crazy. And they remind you, they put you in your place. And I just, it fuels me. I'm like, you know what? Let's see if you can handle me. <laughs> so it's just, you know, you're right. You're totally right, Oren. And, you know, I think I've come across academics who are so special who, you know, didn't go to these fancy schools. But, of course, people who did whose work I love, like yours. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I think, I think you know, in the recruiting process, we've at the University of Maryland hired these amazing people who, had the Christians didn't and just equally as successful and incredible. So I sort of, I like that I'm dispelling a myth, 
right? Um, but it is true that don't let, I think for our young you know, folks who are interested in academia, who listen to your podcast, don't let that deter you. Absolutely no, do not. You write, you do interesting things in the world, right? I mean, that's, that's my best advice. And, and so, and maybe I, I, I should have uh, known this detail. So you, your initial academic position was in teaching legal writing. Yes. Well, part-time because I, I did it since I clerked, you know, like I, just as an adjunct. Um, and because I had then little kids, I just went up to Fordham once a week from wherever we lived. And it was such a great way to stay sort of doing something when I had tiny children. Um, yeah. Does that make sense, Warren? So then, yeah. yeah. And, but it, but it was. It sounds like it was kind of encouragement from people, like you know, why don't you write? Sort of the like. Yes, absolutely. Hey, you yes. should. You should. You're 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 in one slot, and and you know, right. Realistically, the academic world is like there's people in one slot and people right. in another slot, and you're in one slot, and people come to you and say, why don't you jump to another slot? Yep. Effectively, yep. and then if if that had never been suggested to you, would you. I mean, maybe you can't sort of figure out what your life would have been like had that. I mean, that sounds like an incredibly important conversation. Where this so important. No, Oren, absolutely. Like, golly knows, I might have been, you know, in-house counsel doing privacy somewhere, honestly. Like, um, that conversation with Dean Karen Rothenberg and the encouragement of my mentor at the time and mentor is David Super, who's now at Georgetown, sure. one of my favorite humans, you know, was, of course you can do this. You're amazing. And, and a lot of the folks in the Maryland faculty were, were saying the same thing. Like, it wasn't just Karen. It was Peter Quinn. It was Richard Bolt. Like, I had all of these, Lisa Fairfax. I had, I had Renee Hutchins. I had all of these, had made these friendships, yeah, with amazing scholars who were like, God, I really like what you're saying, and you should write. And so I was so blessed to be at University of Maryland with those encouraging people, with the dean who was like, why don't you write? And, and I just found who I was. I found my life's work. And that was so lucky. So it is like life's loophole. I, I feel like I think of Danny Markell when he used to say teaching is life's sort of loophole. It's like amazing thing that happens. And for me, it's even more magical because it wasn't a loophole that was sort of meant for me. You know, like I, I was encouraged and I went with it, <laughs> right? But it wasn't anything that was like a path I was like could see, you know, as so many of colleagues who went to Yale or Harvard and my closest friends, right? But they could see that for themselves. I just, it wasn't that I didn't see it. I was like, I, I, I love practice. I love teaching. I, I just was game for it all. So it is lucky yeah. in that sense. Yeah, so it's, I mean, sort of the, 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 um, the, the context you're describing is just, not having expectations that you're going to be able to do this or even thinking about yes. it, just like, let's do it. And then you tried it and it worked out, um, yeah. And, yeah. And, which is it's so contrary to the I think the prevailing sort of sense of how legal these days is all yeah. you know, there are these channels and you spend five years and you do a VAP and you do this and you do that and you, you line this up and you get to know this professor and they write you a recommendation. It's sort of this like, you know, assembling, uh, getting ready for battle or something like that. You know, you yeah. got to get all your logistics together. And this is more just, you know, you tried it, you loved it, and you were good at it, and it took off, uh, which is kind yeah. of an amazing... Uh, and and I don't mean to undersell Joel Reidenberg's part and, J and Jim Fleming's and Linda McLean's part and all that. So so when I was even thinking about doing this, you know, and, and was vapping at Maryland, I said to Joel, my forever mentor, um, what do you think of this idea? Like, 
they want me to try out for a tenure track job and write. And Joel was like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> and so I definitely, and, and same with Jim Fleming, who is now my colleague. <laughs> and Linda McLean, I wrote about abortion and privacy for my student note. And so I had the great fortune of having like one of the greatest gender um, a feminist legal scholars, Linda McLean, Jim Fleming's spouse, now my colleague. Um, and I wrote my note with Jim, comma theorist, and Linda as my advisors. And so they've been my friends since I'm 22 years old. <laughs> so yes, they, like Karen Rothenberg, were cheering me on and said, love to read drafts. And, and Ben Zapersky at Fordham recommended that wonderful Greg Keating read, like my second uh, work about Reservoirs of Danger, you know, the strict liability, one of my early pieces about privacy. And so I feel like, yes, I was buoyed by that Fordham community, but it wasn't, as you say, really well, like incredible pressure that people feel and now have. And I think things have changed a bit, no, Oren? Like just the expectations of the, you know, having five articles and having a VAP and, um, you know, doing the Clemenco, the Bigelow, you know, you think of all these amazing, you know, the Yale ISP, the Stanford Center on Internet Society, sure. you know, like all those things. I feel like those were just, maybe because I got involved with all those groups, like especially, you know, ISP and, and CIS at Stanford, that those seemed to grow as we were growing in the academy and that as people were then writing and spending time in those jobs, no? It does seem like there's a lot of pressure on people now, I guess, as I'm just heatedly agreeing with you. No, well, I, I guess um, in, in a previous episode, I was talking to Sarah Losky uh, last week, and she has, a, I'm sure you know, these amazing numbers she helps put together yeah. about yeah. how people get into the academy for entry-level jobs. And the, the takeaway that we talked about last week was you, you really need to do a visiting assistant professor yes. position. It's very and then, helpful. And then yeah. a downside among the downsides to that dynamic is to get the visiting assistant professor positions. Typically, the hiring process for that is kind of a replication of the hiring process for tenure track jobs. Uh, and so you, does that make it harder for people to do what right. you did? I mean, that's true. I hate to say it, but, um, I, you know, I, I, I do. I think it's difficult. You know, I even having sat on hiring committees at Maryland, you know, for a couple of years, I just was amazed by the sort of production of scholarship folks had that you almost were like, if they didn't have two pieces, where's the scholarship? <laughs> that's crazy. Um, so I, I think that's right. But I, I don't think it's a challenge we can't overcome. Um, and I think schools increasingly, and you tell me what you think, but, um, you know, whether it's BU or Maryland, you know, the, the idea of having practice is incredibly important for teaching. I've just, there's no question in my mind that whatever your practice is, it can only reinforce and enrich your scholarship and teaching that, you know, I would imagine some VAPs, like with some interesting practice work, and maybe a, you write a piece as you're doing it, might I realize it's harder with the networks of those those networks of Yale professor calls, you know, wonderful Bruce Ackerman or Post or Balkan, whatever, right? Um, but I, I wouldn't say it's not, it's 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 still a possibility, right? I don't want people to think it, it's like a life loophole that closed. Yeah, and I, you know? I do, do you have a sense of how best to open it in, in terms of, I mean, this, yeah. this is like a big, 
how would you change the world question, which maybe is too hard to, to ask you on the spot. But um, there, there are so many gifted people who don't walk in the door with the elite credentials yeah. and are not in the places to get to know these people. And, and so they're good. And if they had the right background, you know, if, if, if they were given the chance, they could be fantastic. How, 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 what can we do to help yeah. those people yep. be in a situation to show that they're fantastic? And, and, and I really, what this is really boiling down to is just how can we make legal academia more fair, more meritocratic and less credential obsessed than it is? Yeah. Do you, I mean, maybe this is just an no, no, I, to solve, but I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts on how to I don't think to it's a that. wicked problem. Right, as Alan Rosenstein would say, right, like this, like you can't untie this knot. It's like, you know, it's binary. You either do it this way or another. When I was on the hiring committee, I always pushed just to think kind of more openly about people's credentials. I know, especially because like I was not alone in that. I had colleagues, you know, I named them before, who were sitting around the table with me saying, I love this person. She works at the Innocence Project or whatever it is, you know, wherever people would work doing really interesting death penalty work or whatever they were doing. And so she hasn't written, we need interesting people. Let's meet this person. So I know that hiring committees, if we're talking to anyone who's on them, they can think creatively too, right? I mean, bottom line is we don't want to all replicate ourselves. That's incredibly boring and bad lawyering as it turns out, right? I'm sure, I'm sure it would make for bad lawyering. Um, you, you want to be taught by sort of a range of people. Um, you want to have law school scholarship come from a range of experiences. And so I think hiring committees should think about it. So, so for example, Oren, I was just thinking last semester at BU, my super section, so I had a big class of 80 people for civil procedure. They had in their super section, four, all, they, all their professors were female. That's unusual, <laughs> right? In my understanding, is that's an unusual phenomenon. Um, and so maybe that's also, so I was sort of um, incredibly lucky at University of Maryland and at BU to have both leaders, female leadership, women of color, you know, like there was a lot of diversity in the, my two academic experiences, the University of Maryland and, it, and now at BU. Um, and, and I'm hoping that the academy you know, we're in a civil rights, thank goodness, revolution more broadly, that I'm hoping that that inspires the thinking about our lawyering and our, and that our, the, the teachers are the lawyers, right? That we embrace that idea and think about it. I know I came from two institutions where that was a priority. I know you're at one now that that's a priority. Um, but I encourage all the folks on hiring committees to have that kind of, you know, thinking. And, and, and by that, I mean, I, I guess, do you mean sort of more broadly than you know thinking about schools and backgrounds and socioeconomic class and, and yeah and just like just think creatively like you it doesn't have to be someone's cookie cutter does that make sense like um i just uh, even at university of maryland we would say like who of our grads former grads are doing really interesting work and we want to lift them up and we think they would be great teachers like we shouldn't even discount our own students just was a conversation i remember having and thinking Damn straight. <laughs> so um, that's all. That is just more broadly being capacious. How we think about credentialing helps me think about more broadly thinking about what a typical law professor looks like, 
And, you know, a lot of people, when they, when you say, what's a law professor look like? I'm going to be thinking Orrin Kerr, right? And, and maybe that's- Let me get my bow tie. Hold on a second. Yeah, I'm I'm ready for it, right? No, I mean, you know, um, that, that, are they going to think Danielle Citrin and Fordham Law School? Like, we want them just to think outside the box, because a lot of interesting things come from outside the box. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, and, and I wanted to touch on something you'd mentioned a little bit ago that uh, at this time when you are um, uh, being asked, hey, would you like to write? You, I guess at the time you had small kids. Uh, and so you're balancing that as well. I'm interested in your experience in terms of, um, you know, how the family experience you had and um, gender issues as well, how that kind of fit into your, especially in the early period when that's yeah. you know, a lot more more time consuming than, than later. Um, how, do you feel that academia is, um, legal academia in particular, is sort of um, dealing well with uh, those sorts of questions, whether through leave policies or something like that, or or if there are changes that need to be made or awareness that people need to have, what, what, what would those be? Okay, so I feel like I was the hardest working person on the planet because my husband is chief legal officer of New Enterprise Associates, so he is very busy, never around. So throughout, I was kind of the main kid person, um, and they relied on babysitters and nannies just to keep my act together. And I laugh when people say they're exhausted from teaching one course. <laughs> I feel like I taught two courses and wrote three articles, and I had tiny children, and I worked nonstop when they were sleeping. So I sort of laugh, like I think women, I, you know, are always asked to do more, right? More of the housework, more of the work. And I wish things, and I think things are getting a bit better about that because I know at University of Maryland, we had a parental leave policy that I couldn't have taken advantage of. But, you know, I was so excited that my male and female colleagues could take advantage of it. It was amazing. And so, you know, the, the push to create structures of support strike me as so important and and i've seen it at my own now bu we have a parental leave policy you know people shouldn't have to not sleep like i did <laughs> i just think like guys it's like any job i don't know i worked really hard at wilkie far <laughs> like you know and and clerking was not a picnic we love judge Lowe, but we worked really hard for her like you know academia like you can write an article and teach two courses and you, you can do it all man and guys lawmakers like I don't know. I just laugh at folks like younger folks who are like make a fuss about teaching one class. I laugh. <laughs> I think, holy cow, I remember teaching at Maryland and teaching at Fordham and writing my new art- first article and having tiny children. <laughs> you just, you know, being a lawyer is like not for the faint hearted. Neither is being a legal academic or and you don't sleep either. So I feel like I'm talking to the right person. <laughs> like you and I are like, yep. Right. So I, I feel like saying this to you is like, you're like, mm-hmm, yep. Well, it, it does seem that, you know, one of the interesting dynamics of legal academia is that there's a there's a pretty wide range of how much work someone can put into it, right? You could work on, you could write one article a year, three articles a year, one article every two years, whatever. There's, you know, there's oh, yeah, different people that, are no, doing different amounts absolutely. and different amount of work outside of of uh, right. articles they could be working on committees they could be working on of course. um you know so important yeah so, so many different things um it is it is a sort of a i think of it as like a choose your own adventure uh book where that's like you kind of make so it right make it yes but that's the beauty of it right is that you know having those avenues open to work with 
like for two years working for A.G. Harris. You know, she's like, take a sabbatical, work for me, come study state AGs. And that's what I, well, that's when I wrote my privacy policy making of state AGs paper. Um, you know, I took a sabbatical um, and I took a year sabbatical to do that. So you got to just seize these opportunities as they come. I think that, I think law schools are coming to appreciate that. What do you think, Ryan? Like that, that um, we're going to do lots of different things and we want us out. We want us writing op-eds and working with lawmakers. I feel like BU totally gets it. Um, I think law schools get that and they want to provide that elasticity so that you can have kids and do those different things. Yeah. I mean, I think schools have, have made huge strides in terms of parental leave policies and that sort of thing, as you point out. I mean, I think in terms of the hiring process more broadly, it, yeah, it's still pretty that. locked into, or if anything, maybe even more locked into. So I'm, I'm kind of a pessimist on this question. Mm. I'd love to be an optimist on this question, but I, I just worry that especially now that the expectations for how much people have written are getting greater and greater because so many more people are taking, you know, five mm. years to gear up for that moment. They're going to get a PhD. They're going to write mm. three or four articles. They're going to do a VAP. And um, th there's... yeah. My concern is there's less room for the creativity. There's less room for somebody who just has great ideas and has tons of energy and does all these great things to just get in the yeah. door. And and um, I do have a sense that it's it's there's sort of two questions I think with hiring. There's like, can somebody like get a job? Yeah. And then there's you know the prestige of the school where they get the job. Uh, yeah. And and my my you know those are two separate. They're obviously closely related, but they're separate questions in the sense that whether someone is at like this rank school or that rank school, you know, now that I've entered the tier 14 and I can you know, speak from on high, um, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. Like, you know, it's the same job where, wherever you are. Don't get me wrong. I love Berkeley. It's wonderful. But oh, like, yeah. it's the same job wherever you are. Um, and, and just making sure people have the opportunity to get in the door yeah. and start a job as an assistant professor somewhere and show that they're great. Um, and, yeah. and so I worry, I worry that the door is, is, um, closed to so many people and getting, getting tougher, especially with the four or five year sort of lead in it takes to go on the market for people that may have little kids and, uh, may not have the financial means of supporting yeah. right. the years and years in that time of their lives. They might be in the early thirties or late twenties or mid twenties. Um, yep. and so, so I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in how we can be more open. Um, but I, I worry that the direction of things in a, in a genuine effort to be more academic in a genuine effort to kind of be more rigorous is awesome is is actually making it harder for non-traditional candidates to get through um, and the one thing and I'm, I'm interviewing you you're not interviewing me so you asked a good question i'm going to go back to you in a second um but but um one hope is that i think the what the focus on PhDs does create an opportunity, I think, for people with non-traditional backgrounds, yeah. at least to have the ability to get a PhD, which is its own, you know, do you have five years and the resources to pull that right. off at the stage of your life? But if for people that do, I think they can add a really interesting yeah. part of the package. And then that can kind of like that becomes a big part of the narrative instead of just people looking at the credentials of where they went to law school or something like that. So, yeah. so there's a there's a little bit of optimism, but but I think it's I think it's tough. Um, well, maybe we should sort of buy the you know include in your optimism the fact that you're having this conversation and you're having it and people are listening to it and that means people on hiring committees are listening to it and so you get one person to be looked at you've succeeded. 
So I would say this, you know, that's why we do all this stuff to talk about ideas that then are publicly consumed so that we can impact how people think about these things. And so, you know, if someone listens to see shit, Danielle got a MacArthur, like she went to Fordham Law School. Maybe we ought to look at that person, you know, like, hey, all the better for it. So I commend you on asking and thinking about it. Well, the, your, your insights have been terrific on this question. And I wanted to end by asking you kind of a future question. Um, so you've, um, you know, you're at BU and you've won the MacArthur and you've got this time to relax and you're taking next year off. Kind of, what, what are you in your mind? Where, where are you going? What's, what's the, what does the future hold in terms of projects, in terms of topics? What, how, do you, how do you think about what's coming next? Well, I, the MacArthur grant came at just the most perfect moment when I was getting ready to write my next book about sexual privacy. So having written about sort of what it is, why it matters, why it's so important, and how, you know, interpersonal invasions of sexual privacy, I've now written about how corporations are collecting intimate information and what that means for the privacy discussions writ large. And I'm also working on a piece about the government's so, and, you know, we can think of our friend Kiara Bridges, your colleagues, uh, wonderful work on the poverty of privacy rights about how governments coerce and demean and they gather information often from the most marginalized and often in, in, in very intimate information. So I'm going to put all that together in a book, sort of set forth my theory of what sexual privacy is um, and how it's, it's vulnerable and the values that and well-being sort of our interests that are, are um, at stake. And that's going to keep me also talking to lawmakers about these very issues and advising them on a more comprehensive sexual privacy legislation rather than just we often view them in silos you know let's deal with video voyeurism let's deal with sextortion let's deal with upskirt photos okay now non-consensual porn and deep fake sex videos and i think we should understand them as part of the same problem so that's the the project is this book on sexual privacy uh, and I'll keep up, Ryan, Kalo, and I are writing about automated systems, sort of like a look back 10 years later after I wrote Tech Due Process uh, about administrative law and automated systems, and we're still doing that work. Um, and so I'm going to... This, is, this gonna, is on SSR right now, I think. Am I yeah, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, the, I think so. yeah, the legitimacy crisis of the automated administrative state, which all the problems that I raised in 2008 are just worse. <laughs> like, we, we not only made, we made things abominably worse, we kept doing the things that were violating current legal values, and then we stopped thinking about what we could do to protect values we haven't thought of or, or, or to prophylactically sort of be imaginative. And so that's what Ryan and I argue. Not only should we replace the values lost, but we should think imaginatively. If that's what you know, the expertise of the administrative state is predicated on, let's use it. <laughs> let's use that expertise rather than just throwing money after bad bullshit. Sorry, um, snake oil projects. So um, that's really fun. So I'm going to keep up that work. Um, and I love co-authoring. I feel like I, I did it throughout the work that I did on hate crimes in cyberspace. I imagine I'm going to keep doing it. And John Penny and I are doing a study um, on the. Uh, ways in which laws around sexual privacy um, it, are in fact pro-expressive, meaning encourage people to speak, um, to feel emboldened. So we're doing an empirical study together. So yes, I'm continuing my um, co-authoring cool. in this process as well. Great. Danielle, thank you so much for show, uh, being on the show. It was wonderful having you. And I look forward to reading. I know we, ne we needed a podcast to, to hang out, which I was telling you uh, that I missed you at PLSC. So thank you so much for having me on. It was so great. So that I could talk to my friends as well. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Thanks so much. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Legal Academy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us at wherever you rate podcasts. If you'd like to watch a video version of this episode, you can find it on YouTube at channel The Legal Academy. Finally, you can also follow us on Twitter at The Legal Academy. Thank you.